0: For the recording's purpose and why it sort of sounded like I've got a blocked up nose or a runny nose or something, Camille, my wife, um, she just had a panic attack and the church got around us and prayed for it and it broke, we broke through and that's victory and that's um, what just happened. And then Tim sang, what was the name of the song, Tim? I Buy With it. Me. And the thing that got me was just Camille standing up, hands in the air, abide with me, God will never let us go. So, And she said, we still preach and we still do it. <laughs> welcome to Willowburn. <laughs> yeah, welcome welcome to Willowburn where the preacher stands up, teary and snot pouring out of his mouth, his nose, and <coughs> we're all little joint here and super weird and it's awesome. But this is what the church is, this is what... Um, This is is the weird broken people that Jesus raised up in this world as his kingdom. So this is what we're here for. So I've got, um, I want to start, I want to start by telling you about uh, a dude called, a dude by the name of Owen. All right. Owen was, oh man, thank you so much. Um, Can you just mute me, mate? (laughs) Sly delivery of tissue, nosy, but a very unsly <laughs> blowing of my nose. Thanks, Luke. Um, yeah, I want to start out this morning just telling us about, telling you about a guy called by the name of Owen. Owen was a, uh, he was a British dude. He was an author and he was a poet and he was a philosopher. And Owen had an atheist mate uh, that he met in uni um, called Clive. And. Owen and Clive used to hang out together and Clive in some of his letters uh, later on that people have read, Clive described Owen as a guy called, uh, he, was a, he was a strange kind of friend, he was a, he was a deep loving friend, he, would, he sort of had this real winsome way about him and he, he described him as a friend who brings you to another point of view and it was actually through you know deep conversation with Owen. That Clive, this atheist guy, actually came to a deep knowledge and love of who Jesus is, okay? And actually came to faith in Christ through their talks of, about philosophy and literature and all these sorts of things. And then Owen, simple little man, Owen, was then introduced to another of Clive's friends, John, or Ronald, as he's most often called. And these these three guys were huge literature nerds. They even started like this little sort of gang where they'd get together in one of their favourite pubs around Oxford or somewhere and they would talk literature and they'd gather around and they just talk philosophy and a few other guys, other professors and whatever, they joined them. It was a very nerdy group, all right? Owen oh, then had to go, he went and worked at his father's law firm in London, so he was a little bit distant from his friends, his great friends Clive and Ronald. But he loved these guys so much and he kept in contact with them through letters and whenever he could, he'd meet up with them in their little pub together while they discussed literature and things over a pint or a pipe. And this, this, um, this, this little group went on for decades the 30s and 40s and 50s in oxford now you've probably never heard of this owen guy some of us have some of us know where we're going with the story but no one's really ever heard of this guy called owen barfield some have obviously because of the influence that he had but you've probably heard of his friend clive Clive, like as you maybe, Clive actually became one of the probably forefathers of sort of modern like Christian apologetics with so many of his books. And as a child or an adult, you've probably read and fallen in love with his book about a lion and a witch in a wardrobe. See, Clive is C.S. Lewis. Okay, this uh, this atheist guy that Owen showed who Jesus was to him. And then this other guy, their other friend, Ronald, he went on to become like one of the forefathers of like the high fantasy genre of books, all right? And this Ronald guy, um, he used to, he loved to sort of portray these deep spiritual truths through like literature like and through fantasy and he used to like try and explain to people the great wonders of God's universe and kingdom and everything how it's made through his books, okay? And he did this, you know, that he, he invented this world called Middle Earth. And Ronald, we know, is J.R.R. Tolkien, all right? He went on to write The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion and so many other books that so many people have been impacted by. Now we know the massive influence that these books have had like you know, think of the Narnia Chronicles and you think of like, the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and so many people have just been impacted deeply throughout the world, through the books, the movies, the spin-offs, whatever it has come from this. Lots of people have gained more understanding of who God is through c.s lewis's apologetic books' mere Christianity, you know the screwtape letters, you know all these sorts of books, and the, all this literature it's all come from these guys. but if you were to look at this these dust coat sort of professor guys sitting in a pub. If you were to be at the, if you were to be sitting at the table next to them, where there's Owen and Clive and John and a few of their other mates sitting around, what would you see? <laughs> there's no Hollywood lights, is there? There's no glitz. There's no glamour. There's no spotlight. There's no influenced millions of people. There's no you know PR people there. They're just a few bunch of boring old unassuming-looking professors sitting there, probably with, you know, the little tweed coats on, (laughs) scrawling on, like with the poor man patches on their elbows, um, scrawling down plot lines on napkins, passing them around, talking ideas, okay? Ideas about a lion and ideas about a white wizard and ideas about this framework of this story, like a redemptive story that ends in joy. That's all you would have seen. But we know, we know, like, from this stage in history, we can see the massive impact that these guys have had, like, on hundreds of millions of people, okay? But it started tiny, in a little tiny corner of the Eagle and Child pub in Oxford, where they used to meet for lunch every Tuesday. That's where it started. So this is what the Kingdom of God looks like. And I want to show it to you this morning, okay? So... Once again, we're in Matthew chapter 13. This is where I've sort of been for the last few sermons of while of well, I've been up here. Matthew 13, Jesus is talking about what his kingdom looks like. He gives us these parables to help us understand what his kingdom looks like, what it is, Okay, is. We're in the third um, chunk today, and we're going to be looking at uh, two tiny, two tiny, tiny parables, but they all get rolled into one, and it's sort of Builds a full story as to what Jesus' kingdom looks like, what God's kingdom here looks like. So, let's jump in. Matthew chapter 13, we'll read from verse 31, just only three verses. He put another parable before them, saying, "...the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants." And it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Okay. Verse 33 He told them another parable The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All right. Three little verses. Two tiny parables, one sermon. Let's see how we go. Hey, Luke. Let's start with the mustard seed. Now, I've got to admit, I'm not a farmer in any way. Like, I've got lots of farming heritage in my family, but I'm not a farmer. Actually, the person that does most of the gardening in our house is Camille, um, and veggie garden, and whatever. I'd like to think that I do good, but I can't really claim that. Um, but I've got to admit that my only real exposure with mustard is through my mouth. <laughs> 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 and like I love seeded mustard does anyone like seeded mustard? Oh, yeah. seeded mustard, oh man, so good on like toasted ham sangers and chicken burgers and oh, oh so good yeah sausage sizzles, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so good anyway, I'm off track um, mustard seeds are indeed tiny you know, well you see them in, in seeded mustard they're probably a little bit bigger than what they would be when they're dried out but you know, they're only like tiny little things um, they aren't the smallest seeds in the world I know Jesus says it, but who's he? Who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? He's talking to first-century sort of Middle Eastern farmers, okay. And and because he's trying to paint, he's trying to build a parable, okay. He's going to use words and say things that help those people understand, okay. He's not going to say, well, it's not like, like if Jesus was a uh, like he was a, if you say if he was a keynote speaker at like some international gathering of botanists. Okay, then he's going to say um, the smallest seed is, and I did memo- I thought I memorized this, it's Arides odorata. Fun fact it's an orchid that grows in China, and its seed is only like a fifth of a millimetre, like 0.2 of a millimetre long. It's a pretty tiny seed. Anyway. Jesus would have talked about that because Jesus made everything, didn't he? With his hands and his crea- when in, during the creation. Okay? So he, wouldn't, he knows what the smallest seed is in the world. Okay? But to these um, so these farmers here in this place, he's, they only know of the smallest seed is mustard. So that's why he uses it. He says this so that they can understand, they can listen and learn and their interest is piqued and they want to listen, lean and learn about this parable, truth from this parable. So, the idea with this tiny little simple seed, okay, is that the kingdom starts small. So small. Almost insignificant small. Like, if you, weren't, if you weren't looking for it, you wouldn't see it. Like, if you dropped a mustard seed on the ground, if you weren't really looking for it, it would just blend in with the you know, carpet or the ground or, or whatever you dropped it on. Like, so small, okay? You've got to specifically be looking for it to see it, all right? What Jesus then goes to say is, like, it grows into this big tree, like a big shrub, right? Movements of the kingdom start small, they grow big. It's just the way God works with things, all right? Um, in terms of the, the mustard seed tree, sort of what it grows into, it's, a mustard seed is like a massive kind of shrub. It's like three or four metres high, maybe five or six metres sort of wide. It's this big sort of shrubby thing, big enough for birds to go and live in. Uh, build their nests in and whatever else. Um, so, you're not really going to be growing a, a mustard bush in like your um, your suburban backyard or like you, you plant a box from Bunnings, okay? It's going to be a little bit bigger for that. You're not going to plant it with your basil and your your thyme and other things that you're growing in there. It's just going to be way too big. So, that's what Jesus is saying. It's like, is that small, tiny seed? Big, big, big shrub, okay? So... What does this look like? Thinking about our illustration from earlier, like if you're one of the millions that read and loved and grew a great appreciation for God's complex world and everything through the works of Tolkien and Lewis, how did that big tree, how did that big shrub start? What was the little seed? It was an English lit nerd called Owen talking to his atheist mate in uni. Okay, that was the seed. That's where it started. Jesus then also goes on, next little parable, he goes on to explain his kingdom as being like a leavening agent, as leaven. What's leaven? Yeah. Yeast. Exactly, it's like a yeasty kind, like yeast is, is one of these types of like a leavening agent. Um, it's kind of like, well, yeast is a type of fungus and a bacteria that sort of live together and... and they feed off the sugars in the bread mix and then they give off gas, carbon dioxide, bubbles, and different things. Um, Camille's great at making sourdough. We live on sourdough in our house. Um, she can probably busts out about three or four sort of lobes a week. Um, and the key ingredient is this, is this thing called, is, is like the starter. Okay, and it's, it's this thing, uh, this starter. So, starter, let's just call it starter because it's kind of like a person. Um, this starter lives, is, lives in a jar, okay, um, it's kind of like the sixth personality in our house, um, it is, looks like white goop, it smells like vinegar and um, yeah, it's basically just a pet that Camille has to feed all the time, okay, it's this really strange thing, basically it's a big collection of just bacteria that then Camille takes a bit out of and mixes it into the, the whole sourdough mixture. It goes through, it feeds on it, bubbles bloop, 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 bubbles come up and that's what the dough is, like that's the rising of the dough. It's filling it, it's aerating it with like all these little bubbles all through it. It's permeated, it spreads through the whole thing and it feeds and it rises the whole life and then you cook it and then you cut it open when it's warm and just steam coming off it and eating it with like smashed avocado or something. It's delicious, like... Cooked bacteria farts never tasted so good, Andrew. Um, But the concept here, okay, is of this... The kingdom of heaven is hidden deep... The kingdom of heaven is hidden deep within a massive lump. And then that whole lump is changed from that little piece that's hidden deep within it. The whole is changed because of that little bit in the middle. Okay? Um, Another story... Another sort of baking story. Um, a little while ago, a lady at, at work she brought in for morning tea for a few of us um, this thing called a German friendship cake. Has anyone heard of a German friendship cake? Bucky, you've got German industry, I thought you'd have you heard about it, you have a German friendship cake. German knees, <laughs> <laughs> not the good cake, just the dodgy old knees. <laughs> um, German friendship cake is, this, is, is a really f- strange phenomenon. Like initially, I suppose there was, a, there was a, a first German cake, German friendship cake, and then a little piece of that cake was taken and then given that, then the person who was making the cake would give that little piece to a friend. And then their friend would mix that bit into a new batch of friendship cake and then let it rise and then they would take a piece out of it and give it to one of their friends and then they'd, they'd cook their cake. And then their friend would then take it and mix it into another batch and then that would rise, and then they would take a piece out of that and give it to another one of their friends. So you get this sort of like ancestry of cake kind of happening, all right? This like chain of cakes happening. This cake that I got to eat actually could be traced back to 120 years ago as starting, which is really weird when you're eating it because you could be eating something possibly that's like over 100 years old, which is a bit of a Concept to get your mind around while you're eating it. It was a good experience. Anyway, it tasted nice. Must be the 100-year-old yeast. Um, but anyway, this is probably the more the type of uh, of the leaven that Jesus was probably referring to because this is probably how bread and stuff was made in, in his day, like a piece saved from the previous batch, put into the new one, another piece taken for the next one, and so on and so on. So this is what he's saying his kingdom's like. And when you think about it, like... Kingdom growth, as they happen, like, you know, the reason any of us are here is because of that chain of things that have happened. Like, someone has, someone knows the good news of Jesus, kingdom growth around. Someone that is then affected by that is then moved, and then a kingdom, they they teach about Jesus' good news and kingdom, and then another kingdom growth happens. Someone else from there goes to another country, maybe... It's from the UK to Australia or, you know, it's from like Australia to Iran or, you know, someone from Iran to Ireland or something. You know, like it's all over. These little kingdom pieces come and then kingdom growth and then someone hears the good news of Jesus and then goes on. That's the picture here that Jesus is explaining through this leaven. So God's kingdom is at work in like the small, really small, and the hidden Deeply hidden pieces. So, if God's work is at small in the kingdom and the hidden, does that then mean that we cull all our numbers and we run off into the bush and become a like commune? So that we're small and we're hidden out in the bush? <laughs> Sounds good. No, that's not what we do. And then we also don't start high fiving each other when we're small and isolated and weird because we're just anti social weirdos. Like we don't do that either. Okay, and we wonder why no one wants to join us. Well, it's because you're antisocial weirdos. Just don't be antisocial weirdos. But it's not that either. It's um, like if, if we're honest before God and we're just, you know, relaying his kingdom truth to wherever we happen to be in life, then it doesn't matter if we're small. And it doesn't matter if we're like hidden or anything. Like, this is where growths of the kingdom spring from and happen. Okay? We shouldn't be discouraged if we're seemingly insignificant. We shouldn't be worried if we don't have a big platform or if no one listens to us or no one comes in to, to hear from us. Like, we shouldn't be worried about that. See, uh, Jesus' kingdoms, they're completely counter to how our world runs. Like, If you want to get a big movement happening, say you're a big organisation, you want to get a big movement happening, what do you do? You hire R. Sweet, like one of the best, you know, on-point sort of PR firms. You have sweet advertisements, you know, really good targeted sort of social media campaign. Maybe you get a couple of big-name celebrities on board, something like that, to, to, you know, help promote it or say, oh, you all love this product, you know, whatever, you know. But what does Jesus do? What did Jesus do when he wanted to, you know, break out his kingdom and spread his kingdom to the whole world? How did he go about it? He went to the weak, the minnows, the underprivileged, the nobodies, okay? And that's where he started from. Let's let's just spend a couple minutes tracing this out, just to maybe prove our point a little bit. Um, Jesus, on his way to... um, Okay, Jesus is sitting in heaven. He's like, all right, I need a cosmic redemption plan. Where am I going to go? All right, earth, um, obviously, because... I made life there. Um, where on earth am I going to go? Where is the most influential place on earth I can go? Does he say that? No. Where does he end up showing up? Yes, exactly. In stables. In a little place called Bethlehem. And then because uh, uh, a Herod, the despot, is trying to hunt him down and kill him, um, his family then has to flee to Egypt. And then on the way back, they settle in a place called... Nazareth, exactly, let's have a bit of a read, Matthew chapter 2, verse 21, and he, so that's speaking of Joseph, rose and took the child, that's Jesus, and his mother, that's Mary, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, if that's how you pronounce it, was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod... He was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken by the prophets that... Sorry, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, so it's really important that Jesus even called a Nazarene as in you come from Nazareth. Now, what was Nazareth? Where was Nazareth? It wasn't much of a joint. You know how... Um, I don't know about you guys, civilized. Probably a lot of you maybe grew up in Toowoomba, a bit more civilized than me and Bundy. But we used to pay out. Oh man, I'm not meant to say where I came from. Or last week's (laughs) sermon where I was paying out Bundy. Oh no, poor Bundaberg. Um, It's it's out. Um, Yeah. Yes. Exactly. I've got such an American accent. we, what, as like sort of when we were growing up, there was always this culture where you would pay out on the smaller town, sort of beside you. You know what you know what I mean? Like so, like for so this example, like Brisbane would pay out on Toowoomba, like all oh, those Tibarians, Bogan's, you know. Blah, blah, blah. And then Toowoomba people would then pay out on I don't know, Crows Nest or Oki or somewhere. Yeah, <coughs> Dolby. Yeah. And then, you know, Crow's Nest or Dolby or whatever, they'd pay out on, I don't know, Goombungee or something, you know, like they just keep, you know, you keep going down. Nazareth was probably at the bottom of the pile, all right? Nazareth had no one else to pay out on. Archaeologists reckon that Nazareth probably only had, you know, two, three hundred sort of people living in it, probably just a a commune of uh, three or four, you know, extended, sort of extended larger families. There was not much going on at this place. And even then, like if you go uh, over into, where is it? First chapter of John, I think, when Jesus is calling his disciples. He calls Philip. And Philip then goes to Nathanael and says, hey man, come on, we've got this, we've we found the guy that Moses and the prophets and everyone were looking forward to. And, you know, it's Jesus the Nazarene, just Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, Nazareth, dude, that, dude, that place is a dump. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. That's like, it's got a huge Centrelink office there. Like, there's <laughs> bomby Commodores in every yard with grass growing up through the floors. Like, this is Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. They've got an Audi. they Well, <laughs> case in point. But you know, you know what I mean? Like, Nathaniel's just like, gross. How could our... Is this guy meant to be the Messiah? He's meant to be the coming king? Like, why would he come from a place like called Nazareth? But Jesus did. And he was called a Nazarene. It's like saying, like, he actually, like, he came from there. He's willing to be actually labeled as coming from this small, no-hoping, backwater, paid-out-on, dumpy kind of place. Jesus was all about coming to the, the everyday person, okay, the the downtrodden, the oppressed, the no-hopers, the bogans, you know, that's what Jesus is embodying that. And then, okay, next point, Uh, Jesus is coming, he's coming as a king, all right, he's meant to be installing this place, like his kingdom, Um, what does a king have? If a king needs to come and take over a place, what does a king need? He needs a big Posse. posse, yeah, in military terms, an army, yeah, exactly. He needs a big army, okay? So who does he call his, his, his followers? Does he just stroll into like, the local Roman garrison and just say, hey, you, just point out to all the most decorated centurions, you and you and you, come with me, bring your best, you know, your bravest soldiers with me. We need an army. We're going to take over this Roman place. We're going to take back this empire. We're going to take back this world. Does he do that? No, not at all. Uh, Where is it? Matthew chapter 4 or something, I think it is. Jesus called the first disciples. Here we go, Matthew 4, chapter 18. While walking the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers who were UFC fighters. Simon, no, not at all. Two brothers who were called Peter, uh, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Exactly. And he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw another two brothers, James, the son of Je- Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Oh, man. These guys. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. It's just. Jesus' first followers that he calls his disciples, like his disciples, they're just fishermen, okay? Like, if you look at the the sort of the historical context of who fishermen were, they are not the richest, most powerful people in the world. They're sort of just giving people their food, just going around, getting food for people. Um, Probably from hauling in those massive nets, especially, you know, when Jesus filled them with fish. Probably. Um, But, uh, yeah, you, you know, they're just... I don't know, they, they, they weren't the poorest though either, like scholars seem to think that they might be um, like lower middle class, probably just your general blue-collar worker today, all right, this is who these guys were, so Jesus is just getting these blokes, general blokes, like blokes like Parky, blokes like Sam, just, you know, Sarge, just your run-of-the-mill normal bloke, okay. He doesn't need this army. He's not about just taking this army. He's not about this strong, powerful force. He's just about, look, let's just get these normal, everyday blokes, normal people. So and you know we could go on for ages. We could talk about you know the woman that Jesus meets at the well. She's an outcast in her society. She's you know had multiple husbands. The society basically just spits on her. She they don't care about her at all. She comes to the well in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to see anybody because she's just going to get paid out on, bullied you know whatever else. But yet she then goes into the town and then tells people about Jesus. She then becomes a little seed that then Jesus' kingdom spreads out in that place. And then, you know, the crazy man that's running around, he's got like a heap heap of, like a pack of demons in him, and he's cutting himself on tombs and and, and smashing himself up and things. Jesus comes in, rescues him, and he says, I'm I'm coming with you. Jesus is like, no, no, you stay in here. You just go out and, and tell people. And so he went out into his area, that whole around that area of the Decapolis, like all around there, telling people about Jesus so he becomes the seed so these two people like the crazy guy the lunatic running around in the tombs and this downtrodden like oppressed like looked down on lady they become the sources of Jesus kingdom growth in their in their little areas so Jesus embodies this and he shows this through all his work it's all about planting his kingdom in this small and like significant like insignificant kind of just hidden little places, like places you would not expect uh, like a cosmic redemption mission to come from, yeah? So, um, and if you think about, if you take the leaven idea that Jesus has talked about as his kingdom and he, Jesus' followers then spread throughout this Roman Empire, okay, this Roman Empire that ruled for, you know, how many hundreds of years and it was, it was fierce and it was, it was strong and it ruled with like an iron grip, Okay, it, had, it was merciless. In a couple hundred years, what happened to the Roman Empire? The gladiatorial games were extinguished. The, the process or the, or the practice of exposure, which was where people would get rid of their unwanted babies by leaving them outside the city walls for either slave traders to come and take away as slaves or wild animals to come and eat. Um, that process of exposure was completely gone or the Christians, the followers of Jesus, the selfish ones who just loved people were either managing it, adopting those babies, going out, picking them up, bringing them into the church. You know, these things were completely like overturned. The whole Roman Empire, in, in a way, collapsed. And a lot, of, a lot of scholars actually think that the spread of Christianity was actually the downfall of Rome okay? because Rome became less brutal as a society, it was less, less forceful, okay? And so the whole thing sort of came down from the inside because Christianity spread throughout it. So this tiny hidden thing that Jesus sowed into it, this tiny hidden piece of leaven or seed, just affected the whole thing, grew big, grew large and affected the whole thing. So to bring it back home for us... For a bit of practicality, um, I wonder what this looks like. I've been wondering what this looks like for Willowburn as we go into this more sort of freed up for one Sunday a month, a more missional sort of outlook. Um, What does it look like when we break off as little chunks for that one Sunday a month and we go out, we become smaller and we become more spread out and hidden in. So whether we are doing things in, in like coffee shops or around kitchen tables or, and you know, beer gardens or like mountain bike trails, you know, whatever it is, what does that look like for us? How do we apply this to us? How does, this, how does these two tiny parables that Jesus told of how his kingdom grows, what does it look like for us? See, I think, you know, when we break up, if we have that, uh, that soul pursuit to see Jesus' kingdom known to people around us, our, you know, friends... Family, co-workers, you know, our neighbours, whatever. Then God will bring growth out of that. That's where we're small, we're hidden. That's the way we are. And God will bring growth out of it. You just think back to um, back to Owen in the beginning, that little seed meeting up with an atheist mate. Okay. And then think about then the massive amount, the massive influence that C.S. Lewis has been on the kingdom with his, you know, mere Christianity and, you know, like his books where it just helps us understand like the way he argues for God is just so amazing and so powerful. It's affected millions of people. Started small with Owen, just that lit nerd, grows big, affects millions of people. So, I don't know, I just think we leave it there. Um, God not only knows what size kingdom growth he's gonna bring out of these little people in Willowburn as we go out into our lives. God only knows, you know, how far it's going to spread, okay, as we as we're just hidden away in this little normal town called Toowoomba in Australia. Okay? God only knows. And we don't know, we don't have a time machine, we can't go, you know, 80 or 90 years in the future and go, wow, man, Andrew wrote some like really amazing, or some guy Andrew told, talked to, then, you know, write some like amazing books or, you know, it was just this big influence for the kingdom. We don't know that. But we trust God in that. Owen probably didn't know that either. He's probably still amazed. But I think the only prerequisite for us is that we seek the kingdom around us, just leave that great impacting growth from the small and hidden... Just let God bring that out. As Jesus says, he'll build his church.